This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. Uh, my guests on this podcast, episode 180, are Colin Castori and Colin Vent of Seventh Sun Brewing. Welcome to the podcast, Colin and Colin. It's so easy to remember this one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we try. So we've been uh, we've known each other since 2015. I was looking back at, at my own history and uh, realized the first time I ever went to Seventh Sun Brewing was June of 2013, which would have been only a couple of months after you guys opened up. I was in Columbus, Ohio, for the the Needle National Needle Arts Association annual convention. I was a publisher of a bunch of handcraft magazines in my life before craft beer and brewing. Um, you know, one evening to because I it was my the thing that I did to going visiting breweries and seeing things you know popped over and it was I guess it was pretty fresh it was this uh, kind of repurposed garage with some nice indoor outdoor kind of space and motion and uh, um, you know it was a fun place to sit down and have a few beers and then we um, you know you all came up to, in 2015 to our uh, our brewers retreat at Devil's Thumb Ranch and we've you know been friends ever since so it's it's fun to talk to you here on the podcast. Yeah, uh, and we had touched on it a little bit. That uh, that brewers retreat was really kind of a lark, like an excuse to get to uh, Colorado, and thought it would be kind of fun. And we ended up forming some friendships from that, uh, from with you and, and a couple of the other uh, brewers who were there that, that have lasted uh, through now. Like it was some great people in that, and that inaugural class. Yeah, had some real talent. Yeah. Plus, it's fun to you know drink beer at ten thousand elevation or whatever it was. That was pretty intense up there. That was that was a fun trip. Anyway, we're going to talk about uh, Seventh Sun and uh, you know as I was also looking through the beers that we've reviewed with the Craft Beer and Brewing Blind panel, uh, they've sent us uh, you know it was a good eight beers that have scored ninety or above. Five of those ninety five plus um, had some really fun and flavorful beers, both in the hoppy side. Uh, and on the kind of ingredient-focused, uh, flavorful uh, stout side. We're going to talk about both of those things. We're going to talk about the way that um, you know they uh, construct uh, culinary recipes. And uh, we're going to, again, also talk about how they can create compelling hoppy beers. Um, but first, as the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. New this year, redundancy meets efficiency. G&D's micro-channel condensers are built with all-aluminum construction, which eliminates galvanic corrosion. Using half the refrigerant of conventional condensers with fewer braced connections translates to a lower GWP and less opportunity for leaks. Call G&D Chillers today to discuss your project or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. This episode is also brought to you by RAR North Star Pills, a new base malt to set your compass by. RAR North Star Pills is crafted for brewers looking for a domestic Pilsner malt with low color and low modification. North Star Pills carries overtones of honey and sweet bread, supported by flavors and aromas of hay and a nutty character. Suitable for any beer style, but particularly craft-brewed versions of classic lagers. Let RAR North Star Pills guide your craft by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com or contact them at 1-800-374-2739. So Colin Castori, 
why don't you give us the the short history of Seventh Son? Um, and I should also mention you're currently president of the Ohio Brewers Guild. In addition to the the kind of uh, you know brewery focus, Colin Vent, you are head brewer, and we will certainly you know talk about brewing process and technique. Um, and you will uh, <laughs> we will hear you talk about that on, on greater length. But but first, yeah, Colin Castori, why don't you uh, you know talk to us about that kind of formation of Seventh Son? Sure. As far as the business, this was uh, something that started uh, with some ideas between uh, two of my best friends since eighth grade, actually. Uh, Jen Burton and Travis Spencer uh, had the idea in about 2010, got our funding and our space together, uh, got open April of 2013. Um, I guess the next major milestone, we did about a 15,000 square foot expansion to our building. We uh, I talked to the Talked to a guy who owned an empty lot behind us into not building condos and instead letting us build a brewery expansion back there. And uh, we, we got that open in April of 2018. So five years after we were originally open. And then another milestone around that point, we finally opened up our uh, Sour Wild kind of sister brewery. Uh, so Wood Age Sour Wild's Antiques on High in a former, fittingly, former antique shop. Um, so that, that's been a really great part of uh, kind of keeping our beer portfolio interesting and ideas flowing and kind of the creativity aspect going through everything. And it's been fun from our standpoint as owners too, in terms of the kind of marketing branding and thinking about the hospitality and the space aspect of it. Um, and now we're coming up uh, post pandemic, we're getting ready to start a third brewery in a different part of town uh, called getaway brewing with a kind of uh beers from around the world and some obscure styles that we haven't been able to get into as much under Seventh Sun or Antiques on High. Um, and it'll kind of give us a license to explore kind of the corners or pockets that, that, that we haven't been to yet with beer. So it's a, another kind of fun, creative thing. That's a, a fun approach to build different breweries with different brands to do different styles all under one umbrella. And I, I find it a really compelling idea. Um, for those who are Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine subscribers, we actually did a cover story case study on um, on Seventh Sun and Antiques on High. And uh, you guys were on the cover of the magazine and all of that. So you can delve into the, uh, the magazine archives uh, on the app and uh, on the website. Uh, for, the, for that brewing industry guide cover story and, and learn more. I mean, it really was an insane expansion to build on top of the current brewery. Um, you know, you all did it the hard way. It was a project. There was a, we managed to build that building uh, and it is like truly half of it is over top of the existing building. Um, and we managed to not be closed a single day, kept our production going on the beer side and the tap room open through the entire build out. So that was a, that was something we were pretty proud of. How, how did you all, what was that arc that even got you to a point where you got into beer and brewing itself? Talk to me a little bit about some of that personal history for both of you. So, uh, I came from more of a restaurant background. I had a restaurant, uh, bar here in Columbus that I had opened in 2005 and we were one of the first, uh, actually in Columbus, I was one of the first people to do the 50 tap kind of big craft beer thing. Um, and it was this time, I think that was around 2006 or seven that we added the taps. And then it was all these amazing craft breweries from Colorado and, uh, and California that were coming into Ohio and an opportunity to meet people in the business. And it really just kind of secured the idea that 
hey, like the, the restaurant thing's fine, but I really like the brewing side so much more and the creativity that's in the brewing side and the people on the brewing side. It's like, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do something for the next 10, 20, 30 years of my life, I want to be in the brewing industry more than I want to be in the restaurant industry. So that was kind of where, where we, where I decided that that, that was the path I wanted to take and kind of, uh, went from there. I have a, I got a fine arts degree in college. So then I ended up cooking professionally instead, obviously. Uh, and then while, finishing up or like right after college started homebrewing because you know I kind of fell into drinking beer in college and got interested in craft right towards the tail end of college and then graduated and found out we're allowed to make the stuff so then we started homebrewing and that was always my hobby while cooking professionally and then uh after a while of being a chef and just realizing how miserable of an existence that actually is uh luckily managed to swap hobby for you know career i met castorida another local brewery at elevator brewing company uh summer of 2009 or 10 i don't know it was early yeah probably 10 yeah and then we just kind of exchanged um emails because it was kind of hilarious we both had the same first name and then later i found out that him and jen and travis were trying to open a brewery and i kind of saw that as my offer because i i wanted to open a brewery on my own and i was looking at like contract options and things like that anyway it's kind of saw this as an opportunity to maybe make that change and so for some reason they agreed to hire an amateur because uh, none of them knew how to brew either at least i had some homebrewing experience um and then yeah i think you know by 2000 early 2011 i think we were kind of like committed to the idea of me coming on as as the brewer so i was there for all the build out and everything uh the, the original space we actually uh we bought uh funkworks one barrel blickman system from them and like 2011 and got in this system and said, wow, this is a lot bigger than any homebrew stuff we've seen before. I have no idea what to do. And I was like, Hey, I know this guy, his name's Colin. Also, I think he might be able to help us out. And that was kind of, that was kind of how it started. And I had that Travis's basement and it was boiling a uh, barrels worth of work in his basement. It was like steaming the wallpaper off his walls. His wife was not happy. It was uh, <laughs> funny back then. <laughs> So how did you um, go from this this homebrewer scale to understanding how to build out a you know commercial scale brewery with uh, you know a significantly larger system? What what did that process was it trial by fire or uh, did you take some uh, more deliberate steps? I mean, as far as build out went, some mistakes were definitely made. We we put the brew house in the opposite corner from the garage door, so we you know came to realize once we got busy enough that grain out had to happen across the space where all the hoses had to go to get to cellar and stuff. So, I mean, we were in one like 1200 square foot room. It was tiny. And, and so that was kind of like, well, we definitely didn't build it out very smart because we didn't have anybody with us at that point tell us where it put stuff. But um, as far as recipe development and stuff, I, I'd been, by the time we'd opened the brewery, I'd been homebrewing for six or seven years. Um, been lurking on pro brewer for a really long time, trying to just really educate myself on the professional end. And even before I met Colin, because I was like, I want to open a brewery. And so I tried to educate myself as much as I could just through the internet back then. And we actually, we had a, we hired on a consultant, uh, an old veteran uh, who helped us get open and kind of showed me a little bit of like, okay, this is a big boy pump. Here's how CO2, you know, moves stuff around, things like that. Like things that just really were not applicable to, to homebrew. Um, 
and he he was old school though, and so it was one of those things like open transfers from from Menor to Brighton, things like that, and and so even then kind of starting early on is kind of like, okay, I see where he's coming from with a lot of this, but a lot of what I've read and intuitively, I'm kind of like, I want to change what we're doing here. I want to like, let's try to not open anything to the air. And, you know, there was just a lot of kind of really old school ideas that were happening on those kind of first couple batches that I, I kind of steered us away from. So I, w- I would actually say uh, that's been one of Colin's strengths from the beginning and something that, that I've always admired about him and working with him is he's never, he's never claimed to, know the exact right answer or, or been to, uh, it, he, he'll look for information and he'll look for, uh, knowledge where he needs to, and always look for a better process rather than being kind of, Oh no, this is the way you do it. It has to be done this way. And I think that's, that's really why we've grown in terms of, uh, quality and portfolio and everything is a lot of that being open to the knowledge that's out there and being willing to kind of curious and willing to find that knowledge that's out there. And the technical piece, you know, that can all be taught. It can all be learned. You know, the um, the taste piece is a harder piece to kind of, you know, to master. And so um, if you have a palate for it, then you do. And it's it, that I would say is the bigger challenge. And it is interesting that coming out of a culinary background, clearly you had trained on that, uh, you know, palate and sensory side and understood that kind of, um, you know, ability to, to think and deconstruct, you know, from a, from a taste perspective. Uh, and I can certainly see how that may have influenced uh, some of the ways that you all build and structure beers. Um, I'd love to, let's talk a little bit more about that, but first the world of craft beer is a different place. Now more margins are more important than ever. So why not lower your ingredient cost? Craft juice concentrates from old orchard are the cost effective solution for your fruit forward needs. Old Orchard produces high volumes of their retail juice brand, so economies of scale keep prices low for their bulk supply program. A little concentrate goes a long way, and you won't lose some of it through filtering like you would with purees. To start increasing your margins now, head on over to www.oldorchard.com brewer. Also, for years, Brewery DB has been the industry's only professionally curated source of brewery and beer information. In 2019, over 1 million brewery visits were made by craft fans searching for breweries on BreweryDB.com. In just a few weeks, Brewery DB will unveil an all-new experience to help craft lovers get back on the brewery trail. To take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and increase your taproom traffic, set up your account on marketmybrewery.com. That's marketmybrewery.com. It's easy and it's free. So let's talk a little bit about that kind of beer program. Um, first with Seventh Son, and maybe later we'll talk a little bit about uh, Antiques on High and Getaway. Um, you know, as you were initially formulating the idea of Seventh Son, um, you know, those were earlier days in the whole craft evolution, and there were simpler styles that people expected from you. And, uh, you know, and so I imagine that that beer program and the what you want to brew and how you want to focus Seventh Son started in one place and has now evolved in different kinds of ways. Talk to me a little bit about um, first the early days and then, uh, you know, how you started adding new ideas to the, the beer lineup of Seventh Son. Uh, I, I came into, when I came into it, um, the partners all had, you know, they had their business plan laid out and they actually sort of workshopped or, or like brain, like brainstormed a, a starting lineup, two beers. Uh, we were going to have two, two, uh, two flagships and it was an American style strong ale and a stout. And so it was because back then it was, 
you could sell a stout all day long or you know what I mean? And, and the strong ale thing is sort of that arrogant bastard type beer was like a very viable style. Um, right. If somebody and, was going to drink craft beer, they wanted it to be big and bold and, you know, impressive yeah. or differentiate themselves from mainstream beer. And I, and IPA wasn't, I, IPA wasn't like it was now, you know what I mean? Like, obviously it was around, but it was very still, a lot of them had that English inflection still. It was all, it was all Cascade and Centennial or whatever. And, uh, um, we, we were like, well, we just won't do an IPA for a little while. We'll come up with one later. We'll start with these two, you know? And so we developed recipes for the strong ale and, and the, uh, and the stout, um, and launched, you know, we, we started with those two beers and realized, well, we've got four, four taps or four tanks. We need a couple hundred beers. So we ended up putting together a, um, a pale ale that I worked on a few times as a home brewer that really tried to straddle the line between pale ale and IPA. Uh, and that, that was the humorous Nimbus. Um, and we had contact with somebody at Great Lakes who just offhand would be like, there's this neat new hop, uh, you know, HBC, blah, 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 blah. They're going to call it Mosaic. You should look into it. And we'd had a meeting with our YCH rep at that point. And I was like, oh, yeah, someone said this Mosaic's kind of nice. He's like, yeah, it's pretty cool. I was like, all right, I'll, I'll take a contract on that. And that came in. I was like, yeah, this does smell good. Let's put it in that, in that pale ale that we're making. And so we were luckily way ahead of the curve on the mosaic thing and got to launch like on our, you know, our first day with our beer, we, we had this like mosaic heavy IPA slash pale ale, strong pale ale as it became known later, you know, we kind of like had that before it was proper style. Uh, and then we hit him with a oat brown ale. It was sort of a derivative, of, uh, a surly beer or something. I forget where I kind of came on the idea of doing an oat, oat brown. Uh, and those were our first four beers, you know, and, and, uh, but we quickly, quickly realized that, like, even in the two years of like planning and build out and getting launched and everything, the original plan just wasn't viable. And you can't just have two beers that you do year round. It's like you need to have hundreds of beers. So, you know, from then it was just hit the ground running with a pilot system, uh, doing either one barrel, two barrel batches, and then the 15. When we felt bold enough to throw something directly into 15 right away, like, there was a black IPA really early on. Um, we got into doing, I was really, still am really fond of like Saison farmhouse style brewing. So we had a whole series of Saisons that we'd run during the summertime and things like that. The only thing I would add to that is I think that the, uh, the choice of our, our first recipe that we really workshopped a lot was the American strong ale. And that was the one we were kind of, uh, Colin was test brewing for, for us, uh, through somebody who had kind of a, a larger homebrew system set up where they could do multiple batches. And that's where we settled on, which was a little bit different choice than a lot of people at the time. We, we decided that we liked an English ale yeast rather than the, a, like a California Chico style, super clean. So that kind of became, I think one of the, one of the predominant flavor profiles of our beer is having that slightly, slightly fruitier kind of English, English ale yeast to our hoppy things and a lot of our other core items and that that was something that we settled on from those first batches of strong ale uh that's really stuck around since yeah that's a good point i didn't really think about that but yeah we we did a like a one barrel batch on the strong ale and split it into a handful of carboys and hit it with a handful of different strains um and settled on on this one english ale that we really like because you push the temperature a little bit on and it gets very fruity and so it was one of those things like oh yeah we've got fruitier hops we can push it with this fruitier yeast and we just sort of settled into that, um, you know, that yeast for, for our, for our house. 
the same kind of mentality that would later kind of come to define New England uh, style IPA and hoppy brewing. Uh, and that that's the Seventh Son Strong Ale, right? Named after the brewery? Yeah. Actually, uh, we got named after the beer because we were originally called Born Brewing Company. And then there was a little bit of uh, saber rattling on Anheuser-Busch kind of Rolling Rock had like born small town. It was like, oh boy, they're gonna sue us into oblivion. So we ended up liking the name of the beer so much, we named the brewery Seven Sun. And so the beer is sort of unofficially the Seven Sun of the Seven Sun. So you get a little Iron Maiden in there too. Nice. I, I know we reviewed that with our classics a couple issues ago, and it scored a ninety six. And so uh, it's fun to to taste those beers now. And of course, Nimbus Pale Ale that you also mentioned, uh, you know, scored a ninety seven with our blind reviewers. So there's something that also feels still current about those. Um, how have those recipes um, changed or developed over time, or have you kept them pretty much the same? Um, there's been like a subtle evolution of them as we've gone over the years uh, like with the strong ale um that one sort of like we walked back the bitterness slightly um pulled like it was pretty um pretty willamette heavy back in the olden days and so that obviously that that portion shrank and we kind of lean more into the fruitier stuff that we were putting into it um but the core of that beer hasn't changed too much and the nimbus was the same thing i mean i think the base recipe malt wise is exactly the same as we wrote it um but the hops have stayed the same, but we've been looking like we use cryo now. So there's, it's been more a little bit of like just optimizing that beer. Um, we're looking at like, I think we've softened the IBUs slightly from over the last seven years, you know? So it was probably something like a 60 IBU beer originally. And now we're more closer to like 40, I think. So that's just sort of keeping up with people's taste trends and stuff and saying like, you know, the Nimbus is really good. It smells amazing. It's a, it finishes a touch bitter for where a lot of people's profiles are right now. It's like, okay, we'll knock a few, few ideas out of the boil and, and move those to dry hop instead. So how much has year to year, you know, changes in um, hops, uh, you know, crops and uh, you know, and the way that those express in the beer impacted, you know, um, these batches since you're building these as, you know, kind of uh, continuous core brands, yeah. Um, how much do you pay attention to that idea of consistency and expectation from your regular drinkers and then making sure that's the same? And how much do you, you know, then need to adjust as, uh, you know, say new crops years, uh, you know, appear and work their way into your brewing process? I think the, the nice thing is that to, by the time we got to the scale where that is a major concern, I mean, let's be honest, if you're going to make 600 barrels of beer in a year the consistency should be important but it's not going to be that guaranteed um but by the time we got to the point where we're like all right we're making a lot of this it's in cans it's all over the state we were big enough to start um doing selection on our hops and so mosaics are driving the hop and we have a large enough uh contract on that hop that we go out for selection and then all the other ones fall in line as well so we select for mosaic and Simcoe and columbus and palisade because those are the four hops in, in nimbus and so Colin and I always go out and, um, well, obviously not last year, they mailed them to us. Uh, but it's sort of like when we get our lots in front of us, it's kind of like, we want to find the best expression of mosaic and that this one's super punchy. It smells amazing. And it still smells like what we want mosaic to be. Uh, but that's kind of, I would say that's about the extent of our like concerns with like making sure that our consistency is there because at the end brewing process doesn't change and the dry hopping rate and everything like that stays consistent. We just want to make sure that we're getting the punchiest version of that hop. And so if year over year, the beer gets slightly better because the hops are changing a little bit, I'm totally fine with that. 
rather than, I mean, we don't have GC or anything to run the beers through and say, oh no, the mercine on this one is off or whatever, you know, like we're, we're more just sort of like, let's just continually push that a little bit better as opposed to just trying to keep it static. And, you know, that's something I hear you know, commonly from brewers. No one, no consumer ever complained when a beer got better, um, you know, uh, you know, but in a broader sense, like what is better? You know, I think the idea of better uh, is an abstract thing and in some ways is driven by, you know, broader shifts in consumer palates and even in brewer palates, you know, so. Um, you know, from your perspective, like what, how has that idea of what is better, you know, changed over time? Well, I mean, not that it's really changed much, but I think like for me always, it's just that clarity of flavor has always been important. So if you can, if you can find a lot of hops that really, rather than just smelling generically hoppy, um, if it really has like these top notes that you're looking for and they're like, wow, this one really does scream citrus. And there is that nice extra layer of tropical or whatever. When they're a little bit clearer than just open up a bag, it smells hoppy, you know? And so then for me, when I'm talking about pushing things better, I'm looking for more clarity out of that aroma. So the malts need to stay nice and clean and you want that little honey note in there from the malts and things like that. And then you want the hops to really express themselves purely is what you want them to be. And so for me, like I want my Columbus to have a little bit of that diesel funk. I want our mosaic to be extra fruity. The Palisade, I've always just described Palisade as being pretty. It's like flowers and stuff. Like, so as long as those hops are really expressing that, you know, and that's what we're trying to push. Like, how do we make sure that this, this beer carries that clarity. And then, I mean, at the end of the day, it, it turns into how do we do that more efficiently too? Like how do we get slightly better yield? When should we be really dropping the bottoms of these tanks or dry hop schedule, things like that to punch up the aroma and also kind of extract better yields and things like that. It is such a, you know, looking at it from a sensory perspective and thinking about, you know, the way the human senses interact with these things. I'm, I'm always fascinated by the way that, our ability to perceive things, you know, changes, you can call it improved, but I would say that um, becomes more granular and more finely tuned, you know, and it could be, you could look at it from a visual standpoint. You know, I look back at digital photos from 20 years ago and they look duller. There's less contrast there, you know, there's less color saturation and these are digital photos. Like, you know, they haven't aged like printed photos, you know, but what has happened is that we have grown more finely tuned to things like contrast and saturation and our ability of our digital devices to provide that to us, higher contrast screens, higher color gamut screens, higher resolution screens. You know, we went from 72 DPI to 96 DPI, and now you've got an iPhone screen that's like 250 DPI. You've got televisions that were, you know, uh, 1080p and then they're you know 4k and now you've got 8k televisions and our ability to discern finer and finer elements of kind of contrast and sharpness and and brightness and all of those things like as we continue to move through time we become able to pick out finer and finer differences between these kinds of things and perceive that as quality and i think the same thing happens at a taste level with people drinking beer the more beer we drink the more you taste the you know more different beers and brewers beers you taste 
the more finely tuned even consumers become around this kind of thing. And they can taste smaller and smaller differences in that kind of brightness and what you mentioned, clarity, you know. Um, and so they start parsing out those finer and finer details. And so, you know, in some ways, you know, these actions of brewers track with the, um, you know, the kind of uh, perception, you know, capability of consumers. And I think they, they just track together over time. Like, and there's, it's always that kind of quest to stay right there as your audience becomes better at, at you know, finding those finer details. So I don't know, it's just an interesting process to watch it happen. Um, and brewers, you know, you all included have certainly continued to Im- improve those beers by improving them, really making sure that they are remaining this, the way that those consumers may have perceived them originally. Um, because if they don't move and shift, then they start tasting old. Yeah. Um, you know, are there any other, you know, beers for you all that have, um, you know, kind of evolved along that spectrum over time? I'm not sure. I'm, thinking, I'm trying to think of anything that's just been like, that we've been brewing long enough to have like seriously changed over the years. I mean, honestly, like our, our holiday beer, um, the winter IPA rhyme started its life as a draft only called glad tidings. Um, and that very first batch had like, we made like a quince puree to put in it and it had a lot more spices and, and it was very bitter. And, and, you know, that one's changed every time we brew it, we kind of change it slightly. Um, because it was never, we still haven't quite landed on my ideal for what that beer would be. Um, and we see like where you spin your wheels in some ways and like, well, this, all this work we're doing here isn't really improving the beer in any way. So why are we doing this? We tossed out that idea and go to something else. So like a lot of the, the additional ingredients that might come into a beer can get refined over time. Uh, the Imperial Stout Oubliette has always been a moving target the same way. It's just, I've always really liked that beer, but we've never made a batch. I'm like, ah, done. Good. We got it. There it is. Even, even, you know, we do two batches a year, roughly maybe three. This last year we did three batches, which was really exciting. Um, and even within one year of like doing a batch and saying that one fermented great, I'm really happy with where it ended up, but I still kind of want to see what happens if there's a little higher quantity of the Munich two in there instead of the Vienna or whatever. So that one is one of those things I think such a huge complex beer, like an Imperial stout. There's a lot of room to just keep tweaking at it and tweaking at it without, it becomes a really philosophical question too. Just like you talk about like a consumer getting more savvy and being able to like discern these details and things like that. It's like to a point, I, I agree a lot. Like you're sitting in your house untapped is sort of tapped, <laughs> tapped into this notion of everyone is a reviewer and things. And, and they start, you know, your consumer starts paying more attention to what they're drinking the flip side of that is like when we sell a third of our beer across the bar, you know, in our, in our space, um, 90% of that are folks sitting, chatting with a beer in their hand and they'll drink their beer and they look down and the beer is all gone and they get up and they go get another beer. At some point within that hanging out session, I'd like to think that like, Oh, this is really good. This is nice and pretty. And then they go back to the conversations as opposed to, you know, I, I think the nice thing you do a beer really well, it can be one of those things you could pay as much attention to it as you want. And it can be one of those things that like, wow, this is really boozy and strong and delicious and I'm having a great time drinking it. Or you can sit in your house and you can taste it and smell it and write about it and, and go down into that beer as far as you want to. Um, and so I try to stay grounded with a lot of what we're doing there too, which is like if something starts feeling overly fussy, um, at the end of the day, like, is this fussing is getting us anywhere or is it just messing with a recipe to mess with it? So you know, we, we try to, I try to keep a lot of that stuff in mind. 
you could say the same thing about, you know, music, you know, there are people that are going to want to read the lyrics sheets. There are people that are going to, you know, deconstruct the chord, you know, patterns. They're going to, you know, listen to every note of a guitar solo and, you know, and try to, you know, break down a scientific approach to what makes something good. And there are others that just want a great tune that doesn't, you know, in a, that, that's in the background that they can enjoy listening to provides a pleasantness without breaking, you know, the flow of what they're doing. And I think that, um, you know, if something can work on both of those levels, then that's the, the kind of perfect thing right there that, uh, um, you know, great beer doesn't break the flow, you know, great beer, you know, allows that flow to continue and you don't necessarily need to understand why you love it. Um, but at the same time, you, you know, there are plenty of folks that'll sit there and if it wasn't at that level where they are, can enjoy it without having to think about it, then they might not order that next one. And so, so there's, there is something to that. Uh, I want to shift gears and talk about stouts since you, uh, you just brought it up. But before we do that, ABS commercial is excited to be a part of today's podcast. ABS is a full brewery outfitter offering brew houses, tanks, keg washers, and small parts as a part of ABS commercials, ongoing give back campaign. They'll be giving away an ABS keg Viking keg washer in June. So make sure to periodically check the ABS commercial Facebook page to find out when the contest opens up and how you can enter to win a keg Viking. I think also from a creative perspective, it is nice to hear you articulate that idea of it's okay to release a beer that you're happy with, but never completely content with, um, you know, that there is part of that, you know, artistic pursuit and creative pursuit where, if you ever felt like you perfectly nailed it, why would you need to do it again? You know? And so I think like any creative person, you know, you want to keep striving for, for something, but I love this idea that you formulated this, you know, the, the flavor in your head and that you have this idea, at, you know, or at least some formation of the idea and that building these recipes and building process, you know, continues to try to realize that flavor and that kind of sensory perception in your head. Talk to me a little bit about how you kind of triangulate between those two things. Um, well, like, so with like the Oubliette, the, the Imperial Stout that I mentioned earlier, there's, for me, it was, it started its life as this idea of like an Imperial Stout that leans back away from chocolate and coffee and more into dark fruit not to the point of being quad you still need it to be roasty but how do you say there's plenty of just rare like ripping chocolatey imperial stouts on the market where you get this fruit component and that really drove the crystal malt selection it really drove the brand of the crystal malt selection and that you know i we started using grease back in the day and i, I then i tried some crisp and then we settled into simpsons it's like simpsons will have my business till you know the world stops it's simpsons crystal malt 100 percent um, and then, and, you know, part of that too, is back when we first wrote that recipe, it was like people were drinking drier back then. It wasn't, everything wasn't as sweet as it is now. And that's been tough for me to keep up with. It's like, uh, make it a little sweeter, make it a little sweeter. And so like, I mean, the original final gravity on the Oubliette was like, we had a couple of batches that hit like 10, 14, 10, 13, and you know, 12% alcohol It was a big beer and it finished relatively dry for that. And now we're, we settled into like 10, 20 roughly for those, those finishing gravities on that beer, which is still quite delicious. It doesn't trouble me that that one's walked up a little bit. Um, but it's always been that thing of like, we make our own Belgian style candy syrup. We, we cook sugar to get 
those dark fruit profiles. And so we literally can stand there while the sugar is cooking and smell it and smell it and smell it. And like, I, that smells perfect. Stop it right there. Dump the ice in and get it into the, into the whirlpool. And so that gives us a lot of flexibility to try to like chase those flavor profiles. It might not be something you can just purchase. Um, the yeast selection goes back to that too. Okay. We have a very fruity yeast. Let's push the fermentation profile a little bit and see if we can, you know, kind of get there with that. So the, the oubliette was always this notion of dark fruit forward stout and what do we do to get there and then the opposite side of that would be something like Kala that we kind of chatted about earlier today um you know that came out of like at the time i was you know back in the day i understood it as uh um, well, you know it's not arabic coffee it's like uh turkish there you go. sorry turkish coffee is like kind of you know 10 years ago whatever people were talking about you put cardamom in turkish coffee whatever and then i found out that turkish coffee is actually pretty much just like greek coffee boiled grounds without the spices it's the arabic side of things that actually adds cardamom to it and so it's like i had this idea i don't really drink a lot of coffee but i do like cardamom quite a lot so it's sort of like well, if i'm gonna drink coffee i like that cardamom in it um and that was an ideal thing like okay i remember how i liked arabic style coffee can we make a beer that tastes like that without being so it has to taste exactly like that you know what i mean take inspiration from it but not necessarily be like I mean, we're, I'm never, I'm never the kind of bird that wants to make a beer that tastes exactly like a pecan pie. I'm more like eat the pecan pie and have a beer influenced by pecan pie, not try to literally hit that flavor profile. And that's kind of like the Kawa thing comes in. It's like, these are the ideal spices that I would put in it, kind of play with a little bit of a ratio there. We beef it up with a little coconuts, a little bit of coffee, obviously a lot of coffee, um, and really try to hit something that says, this reminds me of, you know, Arabic style coffee. So let's kind of parse that out a little bit. Um, you know, you want to echo this idea of Arabic coffee, um, you know, but not necessarily, you know, but obviously people are drinking this beer in a different kind of setting than people normally would drink Arabic coffee. Um, you know, the, the setting and the, you know, the, you know, of course there's also alcohol and there's other flavor components, you know, in that, that will make it so that you have to dial some things up in different ways to balance the other things that are happening in this. Um, talk to me a little bit about that process of, you know, everything from evaluating coffee, figuring out how to add that to the beer, um, dialing in cardamom, even selecting, you know, cardamom, um, you know, becomes an issue because there are different, lots of different cardamoms available out there, uh, you know, in the world. And I've had some interesting conversations with Keith uh, Via about that. Um, actually that was coriander, not cardamom, but, um, you know, coriander's important. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, but but talk to me a little bit about you know uh, coming at it from a chef's perspective or former chef's perspective of uh, evaluating those ingredients and making some selections and then figuring out exactly how to use them in that kind of beer technical process to start to reflect that idea of the flavor that you developed. Sure. Um, so the the call started as a two barrel pilot or uh, five five barrel at the time five barrel pilot batch. Uh, then the following year we did a fifteen. And the year after that, we did uh, another 15 and put it in bottles, and then we did a 30 and 30 and so on and so forth. Um, that, that first pilot uh, had that idea of, like, kind of where I wanted this beer to go. I wanted to do a coffee stout that wasn't just coffee and stout because there's so many of them. Um, but I also didn't want to do, you know, I think at that point, Westbrook was huge, and that you know Mexican cake thing was all over the place. It's like, all right, the spicy thing, and they're killing it with the spicy thing, and that got my gears turned like what other directions can we take this in and i started thinking back to 
like Charlie, you said, being being a chef and being interested in kind of world flavors and things. And I hit on that Turkish slash Arabic coffee thing. Um, but I'm not a coffee drinker. And so I really do defer to the local roasting scene in Columbus as far as like the bean that I should be using. So it's one of these things where it's like, I know it needs to be on the darker spectrum because I don't want bright citrusy coffee notes. I want deep, rich, stouty coffee notes. Uh, and so I find a lot of the local roasters, they're a bit hesitant to go much darker than medium, but they do turn out some really complex medium roast coffees and things. So uh, I believe the entire life of that beer, we've worked with a company right next door. It's called Mission Coffee. And so them, hey, I got this beer I want to make. It's got these kind of spice notes going into it. It's influenced by Arabic coffee. Um, what do you got for me? And they say, oh, I got the perfect bean. It's, you know, it's a natural blah, blah, blah. We'll roast it like this. Yeah, so that, that sounds great. So we do whole bean um, infusion. And we don't grind it or do a cold brew or anything. We leave it whole. Uh, Colin, Why? Um, in doing a lot of the reading, it was sort of like partially a process thing in that, you know, uh, cold brew is problematic for me from a DO standpoint. Um, you know, that water, you know, make sure that water's clean. You know, you've steeped a bunch of coffee for a couple of days and you're cold and you're walking and you're going to shove it into a beer that's more or less done. Um, the deal problem there, I, I don't like. And um, there's, there's just like still a little bit of mystery with coffee and beer. And it's a lot of like, where's the green pepper come from? Oh, it comes from crushing it too fine or not crushing it enough or it's too old or it's not old enough. Like there's all these sort of like mysteries about coffee and beer still. Uh, and just from a lot of the reading that I've done, a lot of people are like, you know, steeping or, or infusing a whole bean is pretty fail safe. You know, it takes a little while longer. It takes a little bit more coffee to get it done, but you're going to sidestep a lot of the problems that might arise from trying to do a cold brew infusion or getting coffee grounds into your tanks and things like that. So, um, settled in on doing whole bean pretty early with some of the other coffee infused beers that we have done in the past. And that came along for the call anyways. Um, and then, so with that, it's like, all right, we got the coffee aspect nailed down. I wanted to put some cocoa nibs in just to kind of reinforce the rich chocolatiness of it, kind of make up for the fact that we're not doing a super dark roast on the, on the coffee side. And then spices, um, I mean, the, the predominant spice in, in that style of coffee is cardamom, but there is allowances for others. And I find that just cardamom by itself is a little citric in one note. Um, and so I really wanted to round out that spice profile. So we bring in a little tiny bit of cinnamon and clove and some ginger and some coriander. Uh, and that builds a much more robust spice note beyond just cardamom because cardamom is a little polarizing at times. Um, we use whole spices. We lightly grind the coriander, um, everything else, you know, if it's cinnamon sticks, we bust them up. And the, um, the cardamom is whole green cardamom pods. Uh, it just works better for um, kind of like the whole bean coffee thing. It works better for the infusion method that we use. Uh, and Colin mentioned Dennis Hopper <laughs> earlier. Uh, not the actor. That's the name of our um, hop cannon slash uh, adjunct infuser device. And it's basically big con uh, a little conical on wheels that can either be used to blast hops into a tank with CO2 dry, or it can be... Um, there's some screens that can be fitted into it. It can be flooded with beer for recirculation for infusions. And that's, that's how we get all of our adjunct flavors into our beers. So you definitely use an infusion vessel, you know, to do that. Why, um, 
you know, you know, and, and is that that's for all of the ingredients, coffee included, you're, you're recirculating and pumping through, you know, this vessel to dose, uh, to dose the tanks. Yeah. It depends on the, it depends on the beer. There's certain beers that get the spice addition on the hot side. Um, Kala, for instance, some of the, some of the ginger using Kala goes into the whirlpool for, or actually it's like a five minute boil. Um, but then a lot of like the cardamom and stuff is left raw and that goes into the infusion on the other side. So. It really depends on the beer and what we need to get from the spices. Uh, but yeah, most of it, most of what we're doing, chocolate and coffee, uh, 100% happens um, on the cold side with the, with the recirculation. And it takes anywhere from two to four days to get it there. So it, it is a little bit of a uh, jungle with the scheduling being like, all right, well, uh, Dennis Hopper is infusing chocolate into that beer. We can't do any dry hops. So I got to make sure that I take care of all our dry hops before or after. Now, with that, with some of these ingredients, um, you know, making sure that they don't bring in unwanted, uh, um, you know, bacteria, you know, certainly a concern. Um, you know, it, do you count on just the alcohol of high ABV beers to to take care of that, or is there some other way that you, uh, you know, you make sure that uh, your spices aren't aren't bringing in things they shouldn't bring in? Well, that's yeah. I mean, that's a funny touch on that. We ran into a little bit of a problem with that, and you know. Over the years, like we've been really trying to push our QC program. You know, we, we had next to no QC when we were in the small space, obviously, just cell counts. And then once we got the new space built and there's a lab area and we started getting that more and more robust and we're doing our plating now and all that kind of stuff, we've been, you know, um, just increasing that across the board as, as time has gone on. So we, we've gotten a lot better at tracking down potential problems. Um, we have run into a couple things. Uh, from an adjunct side of things. And it was sort of like, did this come in on coffee? Did it come in on coconut potentially, or did it come in on some spices? And, um, you know, each time it's a slightly different story and we're looking at how we want to like process some of these ingredients to minimize, like, is it a particular coffee vendor that the way they deliver it to us is not as clean potentially as, you know, the other, like, do they go right into a big bin and they hand us a bin that they reuse over and over again, or is it coming in in individual paper bags each time? So, you know, we're, we're, we're actually starting to, we, we set a new plan in place. And every time we go to do an adjunct infusion, we're going to um, look at different ways of like maybe treating the adjuncts prior to them going in. And then also we're going to take some of those untreated adjuncts aside with a flask of the word and inoculate and see if we can get anything to grow. And so if we can say that like after the last, you know, six batches of something involving coconuts, we never grow anything with that flask, then we don't really have to stress over if the coconuts are coming in clean or not. Same thing with coffee or the spices. So for me, the spices are the most suspect thing because it's like, I don't know what those handling things are like coming from what part of the world, shipping, you know, what kind of bulk situation they're in, then they get packaged down for the amount that we need to purchase. So there, there's a lot of question marks on the spice side of things. And that's where, you know, we're still looking at like making sure we're keeping that stuff as clean as possible. Sure. Um, when you're doing a, you know, an infusion through Dennis Hopper, are you pushing all ingredients at the same time? Is there a staged addition with different timings for these? And then, you know, how, you know, as you are you know, kind of evaluating, do you balance if things aren't exact, you know, if things are not exactly the way that you want them to be? I mean, you know, there are folks that are getting out there in a kind of sequential way and then doing one, then the next and the next to kind of add and build, you know, then there's that other idea that we've, we've doing it and then we can, you know, add a little bits of whatever else we need to add after that to get it there. You know, what is, what does your approach to that look like? We 
pretty much across the board. I mean, it's just like I said earlier, the division between hot side editions and cold side editions. But when it comes to the cold side, it's all undone. Um, and it's just been that we've managed to dial in that cold side edition to balance the ingredients so that it is dump it all in, research for a couple days and you're good. Um, so that knowing we need X pounds of coffee versus X pounds of cocoa versus this many ounces of a spice to get us where we need to be. Um, and that honestly, that's, that's, I would probably prefer to do it the other way around, but it's a big scheduling concern. You really just have the one device that it's, it does three or four different jobs. So we got to stay on top of that. Plus, um, every time you open it up and clean it out, you got to purchase CO2. There's the risk of infection. It's just, if you can get it done all at once, it, it just feels a little better. And it's funny, the timing thing's hilarious. Cause it's like, Oh, day one. Yeah. Certainly not there yet. We leave, leave the pump running all day long. When it's time to go home, shut the pump off, shut the tanks up so that there's no hose failures overnight or something. And what happens is all those ingredients sit in Dennis Hopper with a bit of beer and then they come in the next morning and it's the most outrageous infusion you can ever imagine. And that gets the research started up again. It goes into the tank and then you let it run all day. And then you just taste it. And over the course of a couple of days, like, no, no, no. And it's like, it's good, but I think let's do one more day. And then the next day you're like, bam, done, right. Shut it off, shove everything back in the tank and clean it up. It, it's funny. It's like flipping a switch. Just one day you come in and there it is. It's funny that, um, you know, that you don't continuously research when you when you all go home for the day and that you are doing that because there are also those brewers that will do very intense infusions in smaller vessels and then, you know, back blend with a main batch. And it seems like you have almost got a little bit of a hybrid of of both of those things, uh, you know, by by using that research tank. Um you know, let's talk about some of the other kind of flavor forward beers, uh, you know, that you all do. You know, I know um, Fox and the Stout was one that I really enjoyed with another heavy kind of chocolate, uh, you know, sweet approach to it. Um, and, you know, are, are there, uh, talk to me about some of these other culinary stouts and how you've gone about building, you know, flavor ideas in them. Uh, Fox is really interesting. That one, and again, uh, credit where credit's due. That was a recipe that was developed by uh, our current head brewer. So I'm I'm kind of brewmaster overseeing all these spaces. I spend most of my time writing recipes and ordering raw materials. I don't really, unfortunately, brew too much anymore. Uh, that that daily kind of thing has fallen to uh, our guy Chris, and he's he's great. He's killing it. Um, that was back in the uh, olden days before the expansion and everything. I, I would toss recipes out to the guys and go, like, "Hey, you know, we got a couple open tanks this this month. Why don't you come up with some recipes?" And uh, Chris and uh, one of our other dudes, Billy, worked together and write this recipe um, for Fox and Stout. It was based on um, our local coffee shop a couple doors down called Fox and Snow. And they have a salted brownie that they do. So it's a big square, like eight-inch square brownie covered with um, Maldon sea salt. And they're like, oh, let's make a big pastry stout with salt in it. I was like, okay, we'll figure that out. Uh, and I, again, started as a pilot. And back in the day, we were using... Uh, coconuts from that we're getting through bsg and i want to say they're like ghana um and it was fine you know uh it was very chocolatey it tasted good and you know we were doing we did the, quite a bit of salt in there and it was very you know it was popular and I, I liked it but i i noticed that that much sodium chloride brought a twang to the beer that we weren't necessarily looking for it wasn't just salty it almost had a metallic edge to it and so it's like okay we can't just go at this thing with kosher salt. We need to kind of look at minerals and other ways. And so the next time we brewed it, we really, really upped the um, calcium chloride on the hot side. 
And so we built this big round mineral body into the beer and then really backed off on the amount of actual kosher salt that we were adding. And that really hit the balance that we needed. Um, and right around the same time, Ethereal Chocolates reached out. They sent us a unsolicited box of samples and chocolate bars and they had a um, Uganda nib in there and that thing was incredible i was like all right we're switching all of our coconuts over we're going to be doing this from now on and so the first batch of fox that we did is we did a we did like a 30 barrel with the old nibs and then a few seasons later within the same year we switched and did a batch with the um the uganda beans and oh my gosh it was like oh there it is now we're talking about like practically a candy bar and everything kind of really clicked into place on that one so that was a fun evolution of just optimizing our ingredients, you know, but, but yeah, same thing, just no subtlety in that beer. It's all medium crystals to bring like that big caramely baked flavor. And then just a ton of chocolate. I, it's like 180 pounds of coconut to research through a 60 or something. So I think yeah. that finishes rather the, uh, the gravity on that's still pretty dry though, for being a big, sweet pastry stout. And that's something that I kind of like about our beers is even our, even our richer Imperial, large stouts tend to be a little drier and they don't have that cloying sweet mouth feel. You give up a little bit of the kind of like the, the easy points for sweetness that you can get, but you can drink more of them and you're not left with just that overpowering coating that you get from some of these super high gravity finishing stouts. Yeah. I mean, Fox finishes at like 1024, you know, we, I've always been a specific gravity guy coming out of homebrew. So Plato, like it, I have to do the math on Plato. I just don't talk in Plato like a lot of the other guys do, but um, yeah, I, I, like Colin said, that's, that's a nice thing about a lot of those tests. We actually, I, I, every once in a while, I'm just shocked at some of these final gravities that we're seeing these days. I'm sorry. Are you, are you shitting me? 1060 for a final gravity. You've got like two more beers in there, man. Like, that just shocks me some days. And it's like, I guess more power to you. If people are into it, do it. But like, I just, we struggle to get our gravities up sometimes, you know? And, and so we really decided to push ourselves with uh, one of our like, kind of one-off seasonals that we did earlier in the year back in, um, when was it? Uh, Candid in, in December. Uh, it's called Lessons of Darkness. And that was one that was like, okay, fine. We are going to load this thing with crystal malts. We're going to boil it for six hours. We are going to mash as hot as we can. Uh, we didn't use any lactose. I, I, I don't love bringing lactose into the brewery as, as whenever I can. I try to avoid it unless it's like very core thematically to a beer. Um, and then, you know, loaded it with chocolate and loaded it with coffee. And then we actually blended bourbon barrels into it as well. And so we really just was like, take the pastry theme and amp it all the way up. And let's just really push this thing, like looking at what Weldworks does and, and looking at what a lot of these, these guys that are like these big, you know, when you talk about some of these pastry stouts, like, you know, who's killing it right now with pastry stouts. It's like, all right, well, let's, let's emulate that. Let's figure out like, what, what is a seven sun over the top sweet beer going to be like? And it is really enjoyable, but for me, it's, it's one and done. It's like, it's 13% alcohol finishes. I think that one finished at like 1040. And even that is like a timid final gravity these days, you know? So, um, we generally don't get there with most of our beers, but you know, every once in a while we kind of try to see what that, what kind of what that world is like. There's so much, you know, to the psychology of flavor, you know, at play in those. And, you know, when people, you know, because people associate sweetness with some of those flavors, 
Um, you know, I think you can find success without necessarily overdoing the actual sweetness just because so much of it becomes perceived also because, you know, alcohol it, you know, is also can also be perceived as sweet, you know? And so, you know, I, th- I think there's definitely territory there to play in without leaving the actual, you know, gobs and gobs and gobs of residual sugar in some of those beers. Um, you know, and, and I also think that there's probably this gap between, you know, say the way that our, blind judges who are all, you know, BJCP trained judges, you know, perceive and rate beers versus the way that certain you know, elements of uh, the populace may do that on untapped. You know, I, we have talked to brewers where, you know, they've looked, they've, they've tracked the correlation between final gravity and untapped scores. And, and there is correlation there, you know, that um, sweeter definitely tends to rate higher, uh, you know, but in a critical perspective, you know, from a, from a brewery, you know, from a business perspective for you, having the highest untapped score doesn't necessarily mean you sell more beer. Um, because if you can sell people two pints of something rather than one pint of something over your bar, um, then it's ultimately going to be more successful for you as a business than, um, you know, having somebody come and, and, you know, share one pint of something with three of their friends and split it multiple ways and, uh, and everybody check it in on untapped, you know, just from a pragmatic standpoint, you know, that doesn't help you as much um funny like our one of our best-selling beers is an american style golden ale and i th- i think i mean as far as like not to be conceited but like it's the last time i had it, I was like oh man this beer is almost perfect it's uh, the assistant uh, manager assistant manager right has rated it pretty well i i think it's such a pretty little beer it does great we're selling you know cases and cases and cases out a day through just dist- dist- through distribution it's like you know, Lessons in Darkness was a lot of fun, but it's not 90% of what we're selling. It's not keeping the lights on. It's it's normal beers that normal people like to drink all the time. It's fun to have those splurge kind of products and explore those kind of really extreme levels of, of making beer. But I I think Untapped, and not to like shit on Untapped and everything, but I think Untapped has caused a little bit of a weird feedback chamber of like, you see what's hyped and it almost looks like that's what everyone's drinking all the time when it's really a very small subset that's extra loud about it. And I think it's important as a professional brewer to keep that in mind and remember that like, just because a beer is really hard, like if you make a really small amount of beer, it's really hard to get their hands on. They're going to love it, but you've only sold a hundred cases. You could be selling a thousand cases and the thousand cases is going to bring much more income for your employees and, and allow you to get a new tank and expand your projects and things like that. So it's for us, it's always been a balance of doing a really, really good beer all the time really well and also having fun and kind of branching out and doing something kind of wacky every once in a while. Sure. Well, I, sure. I think the market is uh, the market is always cyclical. There's always trends and there's always things out there, but it's nice to see, especially in the last little while, that people are coming back a little bit at least to beer flavored beer and not as much a uh, uh, other flavored beer. Um, and I think that's the, if you look at my uh, 15 or 16 years of being heavily around the craft brewing world, it all seems to come back to that. It's just a matter of uh, kind of having, and if you can solidify that core of your beer flavored beers are high quality and they're what people want to drink, then the other stuff can be really fun and engaging. 
But uh, I think that's always kind of the, the path that we've charted is focus on the quality and focus on the, the staples and some of the daily drinkability in there and not necessarily chase uh, some of the other trends that are out in the world. Over time, you know, if you look at what become those classics and those timeless things and those things that, uh, um, you know, persist that ultimately while we dally and play, you know, in the sweet realm, um, eventually it recenters and it recenters back, you know, towards dryness. And so, um, you know, I think you're right. There's that, you know, and those are the things that people can drink day after day, you know, week after week, month after month. And those are the things that, uh, um, the breweries need to sell in order to have products that actually connect consistently and repeatedly with customers. But let's, um, let's shift gears and talk a little bit before we close about, um, you know, this antiques on high and then getaway, you know, kind of focus. I love this idea that rather than just create more seventh sun locations, you know, around town or in adjacent cities or whatnot, that you've decided to explore different brewing ideas with different brands and, you know, and to build things that, um, you know, build brands that support other ideas of beer. Um, so just talk to me a little bit about uh, the kind of formation of that and then how it plays out in practice. So I, I think with us, it was, uh, it was a combination of a lot of things. Like we're, we're lucky enough to have uh, one of my business partners was a, uh, a fine arts major at CCID here in town. Uh, my other business partner ended up uh, going into law. He was, he was photography during school. Uh, and we were lucky enough to have a great group of friends who are just kind of creative, interesting people. And a lot of the people who we work with, who work at the brewery are as well. And it was almost more of a question of like, well, why wouldn't you do something new? Because that's this like great way to utilize all the talent that's around us. It keeps us engaged and interested in what we're doing. And the idea of let's just put another one over here just has never had any appeal to us. It's more, uh, it, how can we grow? How can we learn something else about styles, about, about environment, about uh, everything else that, that kind of, uh, takes us to a new, new and interesting place. I mean, so much of so much of what you drink again to get back to the tasting thing is environment. And if we can create these environments that are really interesting and really kind of get people in the right mindset to enjoy their beer to the fullest, I think that's as much a part of it as anything else. I can't tell you the number of times that I've heard the best beer I ever had was at my best friend's wedding at my at this person's special event. And it's not, you're like, hey, you know, that probably wasn't the best beer you ever had, but you were on top of a mountain after you'd been snowboarding all day and you were tired. That was sure. That tasted like the best beer you ever had, you know? So bringing that idea of environment into tasting too is something that's really interesting to us. And how can, how can that, that be a part of the story and the brand and the beer itself even? The antiques thing was funny too, because that was, that space was of necessity. Like, we want to do sour beer. We're definitely not putting all these barrels in the current space from space standpoint and micro standpoint, obviously. So antiques was sort of like, yes, we, we need a space to make our sour beers. We were, we were interested in getting into that within, I don't know, two years of opening, you know, it was 2015. We were like, well, how do we, how do we do a sour program? Where can we do a sour program? And then, you know, that eventually evolved into what became antiques and antiques is a great space because it is very, dark and cool and and like it's like a saturday night kind of spot and we do these amazing cocktails we've got wine on draft and there's all the sour beers that we're making down there 
the getaway is interesting because we don't necessarily need the getaway production space. There's nothing about that space that's informing how the beers are made. Um, the getaway, I like, I like the getaway as a, like Colin just said, is like a purely environmental experiment saying like whole new space, cool aesthetic, things like that. The beers we make at Seven Sun and, and we can serve them up there as we need. It, it isn't, it isn't as relied on that space or whatever. And I think the, the concept of getaway, as far as like, uh, it, we kind of said your, your favorite beer on your favorite vacation kind of thing. Um, and that's given us license to explore all these, like we, Seven Sun, like sure, we, we dipped our toes in lagers and pilsners a little bit. But we never felt, I guess, maybe fully justified in the fact in, in doing those things. And that's very natural for, oh, let's explore German styles for a little bit. Let's try a, a Japanese rice lager. Let's go for a South African kind of export stout idea. Uh, there, there's this whole world of things that might not, that people would kind of scratch their heads at maybe if they came out of the Seven Sun portfolio that, that can really just kind of make sense up there. And we can do them on a small enough scale so that they're mostly draft only and kind of uh, let the brewers and, and everyone kind of have fun with trying out these new styles. It has been really funny and somewhat freeing from the lager standpoint of this space and saying like, all right, we got a lager pitch in. We need to make our money on this pitch. Um, so X, Y, Z, let's do a Bohemian style Pilsner. Let's try a German style Pilsner. Let's do this rice based Pilsner. And that one's hilarious. That rice lager, when we went into the bright tank, like we thought the tank was empty because the, like the volume guide tube up the side of the tank was so clear because this beer is, it's the clearest beer we've ever made in our lives. Like is, if it were SRM, it'd be like two SRM, maybe it, I've never made such a stripped back beer and we never would have wanted to prior to this because it, I don't know. There's something very freeing about knowing what we're making for getaway. We want lager. We want as minimal intervention as possible and a crisp final flavor. And it's like being able to chase that enthusiastically because of this new space has been really nice. I, I would always feel too compelled to like poke at something back in the day. Like if we made a lager for seven sun, I got to tweak it a little. What if we do this? This has been much more like a nice little discipline break and being like, no, literally German. Can you just do this German? And let's see how it turns out. That's really cool. From a, a big uh, zooming out into a kind of a big picture perspective, what is the long term, you know, for Seventh Son? And what does success look like for Seventh Son? And, and when will you know that you've achieved it? Or have you already defined it that way? I think success for us has a lot to do, uh, and I think this last year solidified it a little bit. Uh, it has a lot to do with being able to take care of our uh, of our employees and take care of our facility and make sure that uh, kind of make sure that this year we got through. But it definitely highlighted uh, that we should have some more reserves. Uh, ready for the, not the next pandemic, the next thing maybe. So success, uh, rather than just flat out growth, success also means a little bit of stability, I think, and being able to uh, reward the people who have, who have stuck with us. Um, and I think it's also let us know we're, we're, and I don't think we ever wanted to be a super large production facility, but I'd like to find the the efficient point within our facility, if that's like, 12,000 barrels, 15,000 barrels eventually where it makes sense and take our time to get there. 
Um, and maybe another uh, another taproom concept if if we have a taproom concept that, that makes sense to us. I mean, really, some of the some of the most fun I've ever had doing this has been working on antiques on high ideas, working on getaway ideas, um, and even how those filter back to new seventh sun ideas. It's kind of keeping the ideas flowing is success, and uh, maybe a little more stability is success too. Sure, sure. Well, I know that uh, I am cannot wait to get back to regularly drinking beer in places rather than uh, at home or, or in our office. And I know you guys are excited that Ohio is uh, is reopening now too. Um, that seems like a great place to close. GD Chillers is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. Set your compass by RAR North Star Pills. Old Orchard concentrates are a cost-effective solution. Take full advantage of the enhanced marketing power of Brewery DB and check the ABS commercial Facebook page to find out how to enter to win a keg Viking. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, uh, go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button. If you're a pro brewer, consider the new All Access Pro subscriptions that combine both of the magazine's exclusive online content and more. And of course, if you're a subscriber to our Brewing Industry Guide, you can go back into the archives digitally uh, through the app or through the website and uh, see the case study and cover beautiful cover of the brewing industry guide with uh with colin and colin on it from a little ways back um you know on that note i was thrilled this past week to finally get my first dose of the vaccination which now puts me on some timeline to be able to spend more time in places about six weeks from now uh, and get back out on the road and uh, go see people in their breweries and spaces which is something that i just absolutely can't wait to do um um, and I hope to get back and, and see you guys in Columbus uh, sometime soon, since it's been eight years since I was uh, last there. Wow. Um, but if, if people want to learn more about Seventh Son and uh, come see you, uh, where do they find you in real life uh, and on the interwebs? SeventhSunBrewing.com, uh, AntiquesOnHide.com, uh, GetawayBrewing.com, um, and uh, all of the uh, appropriate Instagram, Twitter, et cetera, handles that go with those things. And definitely uh, stop by the tap room if you're in Columbus, 4th and 4th, corner of the universe, uh, Italian Village, um, Antiques on High is down in German Village, uh, in uh, just south of downtown, and Getaway is going to be in Dublin, which is one of our north suburbs at uh, 108 North High Street, opening late April. Well, Colin Castori and Colin Vent, uh, thanks for joining me on the podcast. It's been really fun to talk to you guys. Thanks so much for having us. Yeah. Good to talk to you again. Yeah. Cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew.